That's one of the things that really is so amazing when you follow their story is that they are so charming and they are so good at playing these roles and that people actually really want to help them at, at these critical moments. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up. And then later on the pod, we sit down with Ilian Wu, who is the author of Master Slave, Husband, Wife, An Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom. It's going to be a good pod, so stay tuned. Hello there, Missy. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. How about you? You know, it's just gloomy. It's dark. It's cold. So if, if to our listeners, if you haven't seen the movie Spirited yet. <sighs> One of our favorites. Yeah. So it's a Christmas movie. It came out last year with Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds. I've just been thinking a lot about the line in there where they talk about in the 1800s, the, the leading cause of death was... <laughs> January. And <laughs> it's so, so it's true. It's so relatable. Oh it's been gosh. so cold. It's been so dreary and foggy and just, yeah, yeah. awful. So it has been awful. I think, I think we're supposed to get uh, some sunshine this weekend. I'm hopeful. I think so. I hope so. But I feel like I'm going to be like one of those slea stacks when I was a kid. The, you know, the show Land of the Lost when they would come out of their cave and there'd be light. They go, ah. Yeah, I'm about to say something really unpopular. I could not stand that show. Oh, it wasn't a good show, but that's what okay. I felt like. Okay. Everybody our age right now is going. <gasps> <gasps> Anyways, so welcome to our weather cast. <laughs> Oh my yes. goodness. No, that's not what we're here for today. But before we do kind of talk about our our experience last, this last week in St. Louis, um, we have a couple of housekeeping items. Oh, housekeeping. Um, one, we will not be here next week. We're not? On, in Pod World, no. <laughs> okay. We are, well, the show is taking next week off. <gasps> so no show next, next Friday. Week, which gotcha. leads me to the next week. All right. So two weeks from today will be Good Faith Weekly's 200th episode. Oh my goodness. I cannot believe we made it to 200. Can you believe that? I, I'm just shocked. So anyway, so 200th episode, we're going to do something celebratory. What? We don't know yet. That's, <laughs> that's kind of the way we fly. <laughs> that's right. So, you know, the, we we do plan and structure interviews and, and, and things like that. But, you know, the intro we pretty much fly by the seat of our pants. Yeah. And for the 200th episode, that's pretty much what we're going to do. It's going to be you and me. We are, we may get interviewed. We may, we're not sure yet. We're not sure yet. Yeah. That's where the we're listener, breezy. That's where the, <laughs> right. You know, off the rails. That's where the listeners come in. If you have a question you want to ask, if you have a thought, a critique. Oh, maybe, that makes me feel oh, uncomfortable. <laughs> if you have something you want to say, ask, I don't know, maybe you want to come up with a quiz. That might be fun. Oh, that would be fun. Slide into the DMs. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't think they want to do that, but you go with that. Yeah, pretty sure that's not an appropriate thing. No, I'm pretty sure it is. That's not either. Not appropriate. But in our vernacular, send us a message on social media. In our vernacular, send us a fax. Oh, true. A fax. Okay. Yeah. Fax us that. No. You can email us. You can message us on social media, you know, however you want to get in touch with us. Our email is Mitch at goodfaithmedia.org. 
missy at goodfaithmedia.org or, you know, like you said, send the facts. I'll <laughs> right. circle back with the facts number later. <laughs> That's some yeah. other point. Yeah. So we're going to have a little bit of celebratory episode. It'll be, it'll be fun. Be a lot I of hope. fun. Um, there might be cake. We're not sure. Oh, I love cake. So yeah. So the next time we meet, it'll be episode 200. Excellent. Five, all around. Well, that's so exciting. Well, you and I just got back from St. Louis, Missouri this week. We had an incredible time gathering with Invested Faith. Invested Faith is an organization created by the Reverend Dr. Amy Butler, who is always a delight uh, to be with, Uh, but she convened her fellows, and these fellows are actually social entrepreneurs who are changing the world in their particular location. Fellows came from all around the country, from Hawaii all the way to Massachusetts. Missy, they are doing some remarkable work. Yeah, it was such a treat um, and and a privilege really to be invited into that space with uh, these social entrepreneurs who are just the brilliance, the creativity, the innovation that they all display in, in their communities of seeing a problem and deciding I'm, I'm done waiting for somebody else to address this. I'm going to find a solution. It's right. just so inspiring. So anyway, so that just share a couple of instances of, of some of the work that these fellows are doing, these social entrepreneurs. You know, we had a couple, you know, that were, well, a couple that run a farm in, yes. in uh, the inner city of yeah, St. North Louis. St. Louis, right in the middle of the city. They have this farm that, I mean, you explain it. It's just really incredible. It's really remarkable. Um, they've come in here and they're, they're growing food in an area that is, as we've been taught to call food apartheid mm-hmm. happening and instead of food desert, let's call it what it is. And so these locations where people don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables and, and, you know, good clean food. Uh, there's this little farm in the middle of the the, kind of the concrete, you know, existence of, of the, the city. Mm -hmm. And, um, so not only do they grow food, but they also teach other people how to grow food. Even if you're in an apartment and just have a little patio, they give these box, you know, containers where you can grow some vegetables. They teach the community how to prepare the food. Mm -hmm. Um, that's one thing that when you remove grocery stores and fresh foods from communities, you also remove that, um, you know, ability for people to know how to prepare the food. So that's really, um, great and innovative ministry. There's another woman who has a grocery bus. Yeah. It's a, it's a mobile grocery store. Yeah. So she, and again, in these areas where there's not, you know, fresh fruit, fruits, vegetables, and good food, she takes her little grocery bus into those communities and gives people an opportunity to shop and buy, you know, fresh foods. There's um, another woman I feel like this is all food related. I must be hungry. I must be hungry. <laughs> must be hungry yeah. <laughs> we haven't had dinner yet. It's true. Well, breakfast? I don't know. Whatever time, whatever time you're listening, we haven't had that meal. Um, anyway, so there's another woman who has taken over, uh, kitchens, church kitchens. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you remember the churches we went to growing up that had these massive. Yeah. I mean, mean, industrialized kitchen. I mean, just really remarkable equipment. Yeah. So she, um, has arranged to go in and allow culinary entrepreneurs who, you know, need some help getting their businesses started and need a Mm -hmm. place to cook. She, you know, arranges for them to have that genius, space. genius. Because yes. I mean, these big kitchens are just sitting there, empty most of the time. So right. I mean, just really and serving innovative. the community again through food. And then, okay, so let's go on non-food related. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's another woman who um, works with 
refugees, with right. women refugees who, you know, are here in the States but are not able to work outside of the home. Either they're caring for a loved one, small children, don't have access to daycare, things like that. And she provides them with the tools and the supplies and they craft jewelry. Yeah. Beautiful jewelry. Beautiful jewelry. I, I, I bought a couple of pieces myself. But it's such an innovative way to serve the community, you know, where she's at. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on. Just the, the ideas the innovation of these fellows was again i don't i can't we can't say it enough it was so inspiring yeah. and here's what i really like about this model is that for so long the church when we think about missions and justice work we have thought about it from the standpoint of trying to get people inside the building right. uh, even if we do ministry outside the walls of the church the end goal was let's get them inside the church sure what these social entrepreneurs are doing are seeing the injustices, seeing the needs in those streets, in those communities, and saying, you know what? Church can be right here. Mm -hmm. The love, the justice, the hope, the compassion is all right here, and we are bringing those uh, those elements, those values, those passions to you, not in a way that is detrimental to the gospel, but it's empowering the gospel. It's making it alive out there uh, in the community. And I just love that. I love that model. Well, it is the gospel. Yeah. And like you said, we've got to get, think beyond the walls of our church, but I would say even beyond the walls of what you and I grew up with when you'd parade missionaries in on a Sunday night, sure. you know, to talk about whatever they were doing. It's, yeah. it, that has to change. Some, mm -hmm. Something has to change. And what these entrepreneurs are doing is just that. It's church in the streets. Yeah. And I feel like the the institutional church as we know it or as we grew up with it is going to have to get on board or they're going to get left behind because it's it's folks like these who are transforming communities yeah. um, and, and just transforming the lives around them in such a real and authentic way. So yeah. it was, yeah, it was really inspiring. And I, and I hate to get all Sunday schoolish, Missy. Wait, I didn't bring my Bible. <laughs> <laughs> but they are replicating exactly what Jesus did. Right. Jesus was in the streets. Mm -hmm. The church for him was among the people, bringing healing, justice, and hope where they lived. And so that is what really resonates with me is the fact that they're doing exactly what Jesus did. 2,000 years ago. They're replicating that. And that's so exciting to see. So one of the really kind of, this is a little bit of an aside um, in speaking about this, uh, the the farm that we went to visit. And I think uh, hopefully Cliff can put up a link in the show notes. Oh yeah, sure. Because Good Faith Media did a, a little video yep. vignette on this Urban Roots farm. But one of the things that the, the director of it was telling us the other day was, um, you know, when you're in that area that has, again, a lot of issues, crime and mm -hmm you know, unhoused people and things like this. He said he has in his farm plot, you know, like he's, I think you might've mentioned he keeps chickens, but he also keeps bunnies. Yeah. And what I didn't know and what they talked to us about is they're doing research with like manure and fertilizing <laughs> and I don't know, a lot of things. That yeah. I, I mean, like, it really is like you know, they're doing R and D right there in their farm. Right. So they're, they're using that, but, but in the meantime, all these bunnies are running around. <laughs> so you get, of course, kids come in or whatever, but he said, you know, you get these, you know, 
big, tough, burly guys from the neighborhood, right. you know, that come in and he said, and then you put a bunny in their arms. <laughs> and he said his goal is just to get them to go, oh. Cool. <laughs> and, so, and he's been successful many yeah, times. But just the imagery of that, of just yeah. softening, again, softening hearts, softening spaces, you know, in, in opening up those avenues for ministry, for justice, for love, yeah. for inclusion, all of those things. It, it just was really inspiring. So again, hopefully Cliff can put the one little video up in the show notes about Urban Roots Farm. And if you follow us on social media, you'll be seeing more information about the fellows to come. Absolutely. Well, you and I sat down with an author this week uh, who wrote this book, Master Slave, Husband, Wife, An Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom, author Elian Wu. Uh, just, it's a, an incredible story uh, of two individuals and their escape from slavery in the 19th century to the North. Uh, and everything that happened between. And uh, so we don't want to spoil it to, uh, for you, but uh, stay tuned. Missy and I sat down with author Ilian Wu. I've always been struck by the scriptures we avoid reading, the stories we don't want to tell in church. I'm Brett Harrison. That's what You've Never Read This, a new series from God Knows Where, is all about. We'll read from prophets and histories we've hidden from ourselves, even words of wisdom and warning from Jesus that we've likely never heard. As with everything we do here, God knows where this will lead us, but I hope you'll join me. Find God Knows Where on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us all the way from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Dr. Ilian Wu is the New York Times bestselling author of Master, Slave, Husband, Wife, An Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom, one of the New York Times 10 Best Books of 2023 and People Magazine's Top 10 Books of 2023. Also named the best book of the year by The New Yorker, Time, NPR, Smithsonian Magazine, Chicago Public Library, and Oprah Daily. The last might be the biggest. <laughs> if Oprah's recognizing you, Dr. Wu, then the world is recognizing you. Dr. <laughs> Wu, welcome to Good Faith Weekly and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. Thank you for that rousing introduction. I love it. <laughs> I know. I'm not sure what we did to earn this time. I know. I'm feeling a yeah. little intimidated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ilion. You write the story of Ellen and William Craft, who escaped from enslavement in the South by pretending to be a, a master and a slave. Yes. Tell us, how did you find this story? I've never heard anything about it before, but it is fascinating. So how did it cross your radar? Well, I was really lucky that it it, it was assigned to me, actually, the story of the crafts. They wrote it themselves in 1860. So I came across it as a student and as a reader. And from the very first moment, you know, I just remember this kind of shock of electricity of awe when I encountered that this voice, this descriptive narrative voice, and, and it took me on this incredible journey, um, an adventure story, a love story, you know, and I really just couldn't stop thinking about it over the years and over the decades. But that was really the first time it was assigned in a course on the literature of passing. So, and maybe to give a little bit more clarification, in their escape narrative, Ellen disguises herself as a white man mm. and mm -hmm. traveling with her, you know, husband as his, you know, 
her slave. And so they have to navigate this harrowing path mm. in keeping up their ruse and figuring out how to present themselves in such a way. So it's just a remarkable story. Um, I'm, I'm so glad that you've, you've gifted us all with that. Yeah. And what I really like about it as, I mean, obviously this is a nonfiction story, a historical narrative, but Ilian, let me just first say you are a beautiful writer. I mean, this reads as a novel uh, from the moment it begins. We are sucked in to the craft story beginning in Macon, Georgia. Um, I mean, especially the first few chapters and this first uh, few moments in the narrative as they navigate their escape from Macon, it is just absolutely terrifying. As Missy said, the disguise, the train rides out of Georgia to South Carolina. So how did immersing yourself in their journey affect you personally? Because, I mean, I was just gripped by the story. I was, I have to say, I was really gripped from beginning to end, too. I mean, the deeper I went into the research, the more I learned about how they did it, the more I just couldn't believe that they pulled this off. You right. Know? So this is an actual, in real life, they are husband and wife and man and woman. And to cross lines of gender and race and ability and just completely turn the social order upside down as they're embarking on this journey is 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 mind blowing. And it's not like they're going in secret. They're not hiding in any way. I mean, she is buying the tickets out there. He is actively right next to her. Um, they are going above ground on real overground railroads and real steamships and interacting with people in all these kinds of ways. And for me to sort of witness that first by learning about the journey and their narrative, and then in start and like, digging up like, well, how did they actually make those connections? What did it mean like to travel into these places? What was it actually like riding a, a train in the 18, late 1840s? Once they found all those things, it, it really became even more astonishing that they pulled off what they did. And what was so incredible about this uh, this ruse that they were pulling off to to escape was that they were also students of the Southern culture. They had mm-hmm. to have this incredible grasp of the nuances of interaction between you know uh, you know white people and and then African people and how all of that played out, but especially the interaction between. Ellen, who plays, you know, this role of the master, the interaction that she has with, you know, white compatriots along the journey. I mean, they, they were just incredible students and uh, of uh, discovering how all that played out in order to implement that into their overall plan. They had to be students in many ways from when they were children. I mean, from their earliest days in bondage. And this was especially true for Ellen. So Ellen Craft was the daughter of an enslaved woman named Maria and her first enslaver named James Smith. And James Smith had a, had a wife, a legal wife, who the Crafts write about in their original narrative. And this woman was so angered at the sight of Ellen and her physical resemblance to her biological father. And she was so especially enraged when people would mistake Ellen for being a child of the family, meaning like her own daughter, meaning a legitimate child of the family, that Ellen had to watch from a very young age for the markers that divided one between 
you know, being an insider of the family and an outsider? What makes one appear black? What makes one appear white? What are those different codes? And when they actually go on the journey, these, these sort of codes of behavior, those actually change too, because as they're traveling through these different cities and towns, through Savannah, through Charleston, on a steamship, on a steam train, each of these places requires a whole different code and set of behaviors. And remarkably, she has to master everyone. So one of the the portions of their journey that was the most f- felt the most intense for me, probably for a couple of reasons, but that was is when they arrived in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, Mitch and I visited there recently for the first time, and we went to this, I don't remember what it's called, but this outdoor market. Um, and we walked through there where now you have, you know, vendors and craftsmen selling things. And I just, I told Mitch at the time, I said, I just, I feel the ghost of what this, you know, once was here. It was a very visceral feeling. So as they're there in Charleston, South Carolina, I kept thinking about that experience that we had. And, but also so many things there that could have, or very nearly did go wrong for them. And so I I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but I was wondering if you might just share a couple of little instances of things that happened to them during that time where, yes, it was almost up. It was almost over for them. And again, this is where Ellen's spectacular performance abilities really, really kick in. So Charleston, I mean, they're not supposed to really pass through Charleston for very long. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be a fast journey from Macon to Savannah, from Savannah to Charleston. And then there's supposed to be a boat that takes them from Charleston straight to Philadelphia. So that's supposed to be it. But they learn as they're coming into Charleston that that boat is not running anymore. And so instead, they're going to have to get a whole new set of tickets and travel overland through all these different cities, including the capital of the nation itself. Mm. So they're stuck in Charleston. They have to kill time in Charleston. And they really do face one of the biggest challenges of their journey. There there, there are a few other beats there too, sure. but this is one. How am I, how am I able to uh, describe it without giving any kind of spoilers to it? <laughs> This is one where it's her ability to improvise in the moment that is so important, but also the good faith that she has developed with other people who have been traveling with her along the way. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that really is so amazing when you follow their story is that they are so charming and they are so good at playing these roles and and that that people actually really want to help them Mm -hmm. at, at these critical moments. They win public opinion on their side. And something like that happens in Charleston. Yeah. In a way that really just kind of took my own breath away. There's yeah. the other moment, I'm sorry, that was terrifying. I'll just make note of when she has to board, you know, and get on, was it the, I can't remember if it was the train or the boat, but in, someone says, your, your slave's not with you. You know, <laughs> he's not here. And she has to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Do I go on? Or st- I, I just, I don't know how you make that decision. I tried to put myself in her shoes of what do you do? You know, and at the end of the day, uh, she, yes. she decides to go and, you know, of course, it ends up being okay, obviously, but I don't know, I felt, I felt that very deeply. What do you do? And you have no way to get information. You just have to go on your gut and make a decision. 
And, and it's not like that happens just once. It happens right. like as soon as they're at the train station <laughs> exactly. and it happens repeatedly. So, I mean, that's, I think that's one of the reasons why the story keeps you at the end of your ed- edge of your seat, why it kept me at the edge of mine. Cause I was like, all right, maybe we can rest for a minute. No, because something else happens. And then again and again, and each time she has to improvise differently. Mm-hmm. But one of the reasons why I was so excited to be on your show talking about faith and activism is because I think one crucial element of their escape is their faith. And that's yeah. actually something I realized I haven't really talked about before. I mean, oftentimes there's such a um, an interest, a fascination with, well, how did they do it? What was their disguise like? And um, what were the sort of technical elements of their getting out there? What were the stakes at the various points? All of which is really important mm-hmm. and really valuable. But I think in 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 obsessing over those details, sometimes I don't want to lose sight of that larger picture. When you ask, how did she do it, or how did she make these decisions? I think she moved by instinct, uh, by all that training that she had received, and and sort of the education she had received, and learning to read people. But also, perhaps most importantly, as her descendants have also talked about, her faith. That is such an important part of her journey, and it really, it really drives her at every crisis point. And I'm so glad you brought that up, Ilion, because I mean, the story itself lends itself to being this incredible narrative that talks about liberation theology in general, that there are these systems within the world that keeps us enslaved uh, to you know, to all the degrees that you can imagine and how the human spirit has faith in this providential existence of a a deity that drives you for this innate desire to be free, to be liberated from these systems and this world that tries to hold us back. Did you in writing this, get this sense of their faith driving them towards this freedom, this this salvation, if you will, from this system that is just so oppressive in their lives. I mean, I felt that uh, in reading their, I read, I've read their narrative so many countless times, and what really started popping out to me more and more in the later readings, uh, with the deeper readings, was the power of that faith not only to guide them through the crisis moments, but to really be able to see beyond the confines of the world in which they were bound. So um, I I also looked at actually the religiosity uh, of uh, of their enslavers. They were also devout um, and they spoke about their Christianity, their faith in a very particular way. But the craft's faith took them beyond that, beyond the idea of any kind of earthly master Mm -hmm. to a greater master, to belonging to something bigger than themselves. And that is, it's what gives them the vision. It's what carries them through. And then it's also even beyond that, what makes them take this personal journey, which is incredible in and of itself, and make it a larger community journey and, uh, and, uh, and, um, a journey of activism into the whole world. I mean, it really is a 19th century version of the biblical narrative of the Exodus, uh, mm-hmm. of this you know this movement away from enslavement, you know, to hope to another land that is promised them. So it just uh, it was a beautifully written. I appreciated it just from a, a faith perspective and in, in the parallels that I saw, uh, you know, with a background in theology, a background of uh, ministry and pastoral ministry. I just I really appreciated all of it the crafts make 
many biblical allusions in mm -hmm. their in their original narrative yeah. and they talk about there's one moment where ellen finds herself terrifyingly alone and uh, she's filled with, as they write in their original narrative, terror and confusion. And they say, the children of Israel could not have felt more trouble on arriving at the Red Sea. So there are all these moments where they sort of break out from their own narrative and open out to a larger uh, spiritual narrative mm -hmm. to join these journeys together. Because it's a physical journey, but it's also a spiritual one for them. Yeah. And as they leave the South, uh, standing at that uh, you know, Red Sea, looking into the Promised Land, when they arrive in Pennsylvania, then in New England, and their journey of freedom was thought to be secured, uh, talk to us about the ways in which they were still vulnerable even after leaving that exodus, and how their situation became even more fragile once the law of 1850 was passed, and Ellen's former enslaver, Robert Collins, decided to test that new law. In short, there was no promised land. So oh, America wow. is one America. It's one nation under God, right? And we have that. I actually, I found that that the line that they actually cross, their stones that mark that, that cross and the journey on the railroad line. Mm -hmm. But that's pretty much it. We're one country. And it's not like they cross that magical line and they're in some kind of paradise. In fact, they become even more vulnerable in the North. It's really in the North, it's in Boston, it's in my hometown mm -hmm. where slave catchers come after them. So we can't neatly divide our history and divide our nation like that. It's one place. And although we've tried to imagine it and it's been a haven and a promised land for many, um, there's no such thing as utopia and right. we're always still reaching for it to be better. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, once they get to Boston and their former enslaver, Robert Collins, tries to decide or decide to try to test that new law. And, um, you know, there are people out there in Boston attempting to arrest them, bring them back uh, to Georgia. Um, did you ever get a sense uh, or the, the complexities? Because we, here we have two cultures, two different sets of people, both of them claiming to be Christians, people of faith. Mm -hmm. How, how did you work through that? Uh, you got the Collins who are, you know, you got Robert Collins who's claiming to be a good Christian man in the South, but then you have these two incredible people journeying to freedom, you know, and they too belong to this faith. Was there, how did you, how did you work through that? Because we see that even today, Ilian, uh, mm -hmm. of these different mindsets and different or people looking at the world differently. Uh, how did, how, how, just speak to us about that if you could. I guess I really just sort of tried to sit and bear witness, not to judge anybody else for their, um, it, you know, I didn't want it to be about my saying, all right, this is right and this is wrong. I wanted people just to be able to see the full picture, to be able to see individual people and the decisions they made in this particular moment um, in time. How that ties to faith, I mean, in so many ways, all Americans were challenged at this point to yeah. really deep dig down and and think, well, what um, what do I do here as, as a human being, as a Christian, or as a religious person, as a pers person of faith? Um, when the Fugitive Slave Act passes in 1850, that forces 
really everybody to make a choice because by the terms of this law, not only does it ratchet up the, the I mean, it, it becomes so much easier for enslavers to say, to seize for people like Robin Collins to seize people like the crafts, but it requires that every single person must re re respond to the call of duty to essentially become slave catchers, mm -hmm. uh, slave hunters, if they're called upon to do so. And in this moment, Americans are looking at each other and, and, and some of them, you know, who are anti-slavery in spirit, they're wondering, well, but what do I do if this is the law of the land? And this is a, where you get that argument from William Seward later on uh, about this being there being a higher law, mm -hmm. a, a, a higher law that one has to respond to. But Americans are really wrestling with that. Yeah. Absolutely. That was one of the things Missy and I talked about earlier in the book is that when the crafts finally make it to Boston, you know, if it would, if it would have been us, we would have gone into the shadows. We would have, you know, hidden, hidden away once uh, after 1850 and the laws were passed, but they're thrust onto the speaking circuit and how that their kind of uh, popularity or no notoriety uh, probably as word began to circulate back to Georgia had to shame Collins and them, and maybe even prompted them to be more aggressive in trying to send, uh, you know, slave catchers into Boston and to network to try to get them back. Uh, but then something beautiful happened. The community, the abolitionist community within Boston you know, kind of started to protect them. Uh, that was just fascinating to us because we would we would have hid, we would have cowered, <laughs> but they didn't. <laughs> yeah, I think I think most people are, are are the same way. I mean, they they have survived bondage. They could be dragged back down at any point. I mean, even before the the eighteen fifty mm -hmm. Fugitive Slave Act passes, there is you know a, an existing Fugitive Slave Act. Sure. There, enslaver has every right to pull them out of wherever they whatever state they are and drag them down back into bondage and they, they know that that's going to have they're not going to be returned to their their former positions this is one of the reasons why they uh, they they took so long and they had to plan so hard because this the stakes are huge um they will never see each other again they are likely to be physically tortured uh, if not killed i mean the the stakes are way up here and yet they choose to tell their story. So yes, they were thrust in a way on the stage. I think they probably went at least longer than Ellen might have wanted, yeah. but they make this choice. They are invited to take the stage. And even knowing all these stakes, they move forward with it because they believe that they're part of something bigger and that they need to do some part of something bigger. And that inspires people. I think that's really, so their waves of storytelling sort of lays a ground, prepares the ground for others to be able to rise up with them. Well said. So there, yeah, there's some moments in there where, you know, she's on the stage and, and, you know, some others are talking about, you're looking at this woman who presents, you know, at first glance, as a white woman, and they're saying, could you imagine calling this person a slave or, you know, treating them this way? And so it was such, I feel like a, a visual for people around to, to really humanize um, her and to humanize all of those who were enslaved. And I, I felt like that was powerful and such a heroic, you know, thing that she was willing to do. But at the same time, like Mitch said, I, 
that wouldn't have been me. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of admiration for her. (laughs) A lot. So, you know, bringing this story to us today, reading, you know, the harrowing tales, but also thinking that was, that was so long ago. But I feel like in any story, in any person's narrative, there are always truths to be gleaned right now and right here. So what do you want the reader to take away from their story? I hope that people are inspired. You know, there are, there's so many divisions right now in our country, so many arguments about what history should be told, what should not be told, um, so many partisan uh, divisions. And actually, the time in which the crafts lived, I mean, they were so close to civil war. And that's why that that pre-civil war period is often alluded to now in conversations about this level of rancor that we're experiencing. But for me, throughout the last several years, and especially in the present moment, I really look to them as inspiration, as American heroes who could see, um, who had so much to say, not only about what they experienced, but what other people experienced, and who fought forward for the betterment of our country. And I find that, um, and and their continuing journey in activism in faith to be um, really inspiring and I hope that inspires others as well. Well, it certainly has inspired me. I, you know, I've read, you know, constant reader, but there've been three stories that have really stood out to me. And I'm including your story about the crafts in, uh, my advocating and promotion of these incredible, uh, people that have, these spirits that seek freedom and do what they need to do to uh, get by in these systems. And that is Sally Hemings, uh, the Hemings of Monticello. And then you mentioned Ona Judd in uh, your book and uh, who was enslaved by the Washingtons and all that went into that and her escape. But now the craft story we have, it's just so beautifully written, so inspiring uh, it's challenging at the same time, but uh, I just want to thank you for introducing the crafts to us and to our audience. It's just extremely well done, and uh, we hope our we hope our readers uh, pick up a copy of Master Slave, Husband, Wife, and Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom. It is wherever you buy your reading material. It is absolutely stunning that uh, you're going to want to pick it up immediately. Well, Elian, thank you so much for joining us this week on Good Faith Weekly. But before we let you go, we're going to ask you one last question. So, Elian, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of your work, our conversation today, or anything else you'd like to leave us with, what is your more to tell? Hmm. Maybe I will just give the first one of the original quotations that the crafts ran by, which I think uh, it motivated, inspired them to take their journey along their journey and beyond. Um, and maybe it's something that we can look to now, but it's the it's a biblical verse, Acts 17:26. Um, God made of one blood all nations of men. Mm. I love that. That is a great way to end our conversation today. Dr. Elian Wu, thank you so much for being our guest this week. Again, her book is Master Slave, Husband, Wife, An Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom. It's available now. It is an epic that you're going to want to pick up quickly. So thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you so much for having me. The 
story about the crafts, Ellen and William, it was so intriguing to me. When I first heard about this story, I kind of read a synopsis and I said, they did what? Right. <laughs> and it just it immediately, the, the story and interest captured me immediately. But then when I got into the story and really began to understand, especially those first few days of travel from Macon uh, to Charleston, I was terrified for them. <laughs> I really was too. And and even before they left, how they had to gather the supplies that they were going to need so right. covertly and and it, it, again, Ilion does such a good job of explaining at every step of the journey how mm-hmm. any little misstep and, and missteps we wouldn't even really pick up on. Mm-hmm. But even something is, you know, how did she get men's pants? Or, you know, how how did she, you know, again, she's riding in, in the car with a bunch of white men. Right. And knowing, I don't know, I think one thing that became painful clear to me is the social cues that we don't even think about in culture and I thought that the the story did a great job of really just exposing that and how again with every breath with every word with every interaction she had there were such little things that could have completely exposed them and so yes it was a very tense story it was I found myself at times just wanting to read faster because you know even though I knew they were going to make it to the to the north you just (laughs) there were so many ways in which it could have gone wrong and so it's such a creative plan they had I know and as you said during the interview nearly did go wrong in a lot of instances and I mean just the the self-awareness the anxiety that that covered those first several days on their journey from Georgia to, to uh, South Carolina um, was just heart wrenching for me. I mean, just even because I was sitting there thinking, you know, she had to have practiced walking like Mm -hmm. a man Mm -hmm. and having that kind of gait and that stride, you know, and just, I mean, we just do it naturally. But she was thinking every step. This is what I. Well, this is what I have to having do. Having to pretend that her husband was actually her slave, and yes. to me, some of the, I don't know, most gut wrenching moments were when she was on the train and when other passengers were talking about her slave. Yeah. And you know, chastising her for you know how he was talking to her, acting, or you know, there was one man who offered to buy him and right. was pretty forceful about it. And so she had a, to play that very carefully mm-hmm. um, so as not to offend and, again, draw more attention. Um, so, yeah, it was just their bravery. I could not even imagine being – I can't imagine being that brave, but I also can't imagine being that desperate. Right. And then the fact that once they get out of Charleston and into D.C. and then into Philadelphia and then eventually to Boston – you know, you think there would be a sigh of relief, which I'm sure there was. You know, this you know, f- felt like this was the promised land. This was a safe haven for them. But then, you know, within two years, you know, being frightened again, the possibility of losing what you have gained and being returned. Uh, I mean, just it, it was this constant reminder that we're really never truly safe because of the systems that are so powerful in our world. Yeah, so we were talking a little bit after the fact of what that desperation must feel like mm-hmm. to to take the risk that they took to leave, you know, what they know, right. which is terrible, and hope for something better on the yeah. other side. Yeah. And we were talking about how that plays out 
today with people who are leaving, you know, places and spaces with just the hope and the desperation, you know, knowing there's such danger ahead, Mm -hmm. but what that must feel like as Ellen and William William, or as, you know, refugees today Mm -hmm. who are leaving, you know, dire circumstances with just, just on the hope that it'll work out. You're so, so right. Because a lot of times when we have the conversation, especially uh, centering on immigration and immigration reform, it's all about the border these days. Everybody wants to talk about the border, but these people have come from a great distance. Why have they dared to make that journey? They have left situations that are dire and that they are desperate to flee from, whether that is war, whether that is poverty, whether that is hunger. They are simply wanting a better opportunity for their family to flee uh, these evil systems that are afflicting them and oppressing them. And so they're setting out on a journey. It's a very human story. It's part of our human nature to want something better for our family, to feed our children, to, to, to give hope to those that we love so much. And I think the stories like the crafts, the stories that we've heard uh, in pieces that we've done at Good Faith Media about uh, migrants coming uh, up into Mexico that the uh, border pastors are working beautifully with is a reminder that these human stories are heartbreaking, they're challenging, but they're so inspirational because at the core of them, it's about hope and it's about a better tomorrow. And they're going to do everything they can to try to achieve that. Right. And I think as we read um, Ellen and William's story, it's just, again, it's really easy. Yeah, that was a long time ago. And of course, you know, we can look at it as, as harrowing and inspiring, you know, but I do think it's important to also humanize the people who go through such mm-hmm. dire circumstances today. I yeah. don't want to equivocate enslavement No, with, you know, I, I don't. I mean, it, there's a lot of terrible things. My point being, if I'm, if I'm not messing this all up, is just that it's easy for us to read something in the past and feel like it was terrible, but also get a feel good. Oh, look, they made it. They did it. Mm-hmm. We have to also think who's going through something right now that we are not putting a face on, that we are not putting a name on because it's easier to look the other way. Mm-hmm. It's easier for us to judge now what we would have done or to think what we would have done or how we would have handled that. But what are we doing to those people today who are fleeing and who are desperate Mm -hmm. for freedom, maybe in another sense, but again, for survival, for freedom, for food, whatever it is. Well, let's just be really honest about it because I think that's beautifully said. We are not trying to equate, um, you know, what migrants are going through today with slavery. Two different issues, two different periods of time, both terrible, terrible. But we're not trying to equate those two by any means. So I, I think you did a great job explaining that. But let's be really honest about what's happening, even for those individuals right now who are crossing the border illegally. What William and Ellen did was breaking the law. They broke the law to find freedom and a better life. And I ask you, take the politics out of it. Take the legalities out of it. 
what would you do if you were facing a situation that was so dire, so desperate, to give you and your family a better tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Damn the law. Damn the systems. I'm going to do everything I can to take care of my family. And to me, that is the bare bones of what we're seeing in this story as well as what we see today uh, with people who are seeking a better life for themselves. Again, I know there's politics involved in it. I know there's some legalities to it, and I don't dismiss that. But when it gets right down to it, that's what these people are doing. Right. <laughs> I mean, real actual humans yeah. going through real actual human suffering. Yeah. And it's we really want so bad to separate ourselves from that because it is hard. It's hard to see. It's hard to look at. It's hard to admit. It's hard to see areas in which we are complicit, mm-hmm. um, whether that's 150 years ago or today. Well said. And so it's just, it's something I feel like we need to be, be honest with ourselves about. Yeah. Good reminder. So we're not going to be back next week with a new episode, but we will be back when? In two weeks with episode 200. So yes, got a question, comment, snide remark. Send the snide remarks to Mitch at goodfaithmedia.org. <laughs> all the criticism, criticism send to me, all oh, the accolades. I do. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, all the, the compliments yeah. and accolades That's send to Missy. Missy at goodfaithmedia.org. <laughs> so we'll see you back in two weeks. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.